take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 43 there in just a moment. Luke chapter 18. It's our tradition the first Sunday of every new year to take a brief pause from the current sermon series that we're in this year. It's in 1 Peter. We're going to pick back up there next week. But we want to take this first Sunday to focus afresh on this theme of prayer. And we do that because oftentimes, at least for me, my experience, the best New Year's resolutions are not all that new. Simply a chance for me to refocus and for us to refocus and renew our commitment to the essentials, things that we cannot do without. And as we look to the year that's before us, not many things are going to be more essential in 2021 in our lives and in our church than an ongoing dependence on the Lord. And so with that in mind, let's read from the Gospel of Luke, the good news of Luke, chapter 18, verses 35 to 43. This is God kindly addressing us this morning. Luke writes, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. May the Spirit anoint both the preaching and the doing of his word in our midst. Well, standing at five foot eleven, weighing 190 pounds, coming out of high school, Jansen Davidson never imagined that one day he'd have the opportunity to play for his childhood favorite school, his dream school, the Ohio State Buckeyes. I can relate to him uh, coming out of high school and not having, and having high aspirations and not knowing we're not going to get there. Davidson played high school ball, but, and he spent the first three years at Ohio State. He was still working out, playing for fun on a club team. He was a finance major. And, uh, and that was all he expected to ever be until one evening this past October, some of the coaches from the university's basketball staff decided to pay a visit to drop in and watch his club team scrimmage. They needed some walk-ons in the era of COVID. So to hear Davidson's account, he wasn't even planning to go that night. He wasn't even going to go to the scrimmage until his club coach texted him and said, I think you're going to want to come to this one. There's some folks that just dropped by. 
And not only did Davidson impress the coaches that evening with what they saw from him, they invited him to a private workout, and eventually he was offered a spot on this year's roster. So it was all a bit surreal for him when just a few short weeks later, he'd gone from playing on a club team, he stood up on the bench and he pulled off his warm-ups and he subbed into a game, officially stepping onto the floor as a Buckeye. But then to make it even crazier, he ended up getting the ball and somebody fouled him. And after the game, this is how he described what that moment was like for him. He says, It's one of the craziest feelings I've had in my lifetime. Standing on the free throw line after I got fouled, I was like, oh man, I'm here. I'm on ESPN right now shooting free throws. This is crazy. As you can imagine that feeling if you were in his shoes. And as one writer aptly put it, whiplash hardly does it justice. Well, this morning, Luke is going to introduce us to another man, one who had experienced an encounter, a life-transforming encounter that even if he had lived a thousand lifetimes, he would never have dreamed possible. And I bet if we ask him at the end of this story, he would say, this is crazy. But it's the kind of thing that only happens when Jesus comes to town. And whiplash doesn't even begin to do it justice. Structure of our text breaks up into two main points this morning. The first one that we're going to see is in verses 35 to 39, and we're going to title that the shameless cry of faith. The shameless cry of faith. And then in verses 40 to 43, we're going to see the second piece of our passage, the glorious reply of mercy. The glorious reply of mercy. As we look at this first point, the shameless cry of faith, it's extremely insightful to just take a moment and trace a little bit of the context of this story. By this point in the gospel, we are now traveling with Jesus. He is on a purposeful journey. He's on his way up to Jerusalem for the final time. And he's very aware of what's about to happen to him. And in fact, in the section of verses contained immediately preceding this one, Jesus, again, has tried to reiterate that to his disciples about what is about to happen and what awaits him when they finally arrive in Jerusalem. So that's where Jesus is heading in this story. But even in the midst of that purposeful journey, Luke is careful to record some intensely personal one-on-one encounters that he has all along the way. It's as if Luke wants us to see that this journey is for them for these individual people that Jesus comes across. And so in verse 35, the story opens by saying, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. And if the phrase that life had passed him by was ever applicable for someone, certainly it was applicable for this poor gentleman. Here he sits, alone, in darkness, and entirely helpless. He's been reduced to something that's less than human, cast out of society because of a disability that he has no control over, and he's left to fend for himself while all the crowds hurry on about their important and busy business. At best, to them, he's unimportant and useless. 
At worst, he's a nuisance and to be shunned. And the original audience knew this guy. Maybe they didn't know him personally, but they had seen this scene play out in their lifetimes many, many times. It was part of their society. That was part of the normal flow of their daily lives. They had probably walked by countless beggars themselves. So they can certainly picture who it is that we're being introduced to here. But as is often the case in Luke's writings, things are not always what they seem on the surface. And indeed, if we could pick up one of the themes, many themes of this whole chapter, chapter 18, one of the themes that would emerge is that those whom the world despises and rejects are the exact ones who end up being exalted by God in the end. Things are not as they seem. But we begin in verse 36, and we notice this transformation begin to to, to unfold. The beggar, he hears a, a commotion. He hears a commotion, and he knows that something's going on in Jericho. This is no ordinary day. There's a bustle. There's a buzz in the air. The crowd that's coming is much too large. It's not normal traffic flow. It's much too large coming out of the city. And so he asks one of the passerbys, who's causing this? What's, what's the cause? What's going on? You can imagine he's just trying to see. He's trying to try, he can't see, so he's trying to imagine what's happening. What's going on around me? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, it's appropriate to pause right here. We want to soak in this for just a moment because it's easy to just move past that quickly. It's easy to go into his response. But we want to take a moment and place ourselves on this roadway. We want to sit down beside him for a little while and and imagine what it was like to be him. Imagine that you are this desperate man, void of sight, suffering, vulnerable, Imagine what it's like to feel the countless snubs and sneers. Consider the crushing burden, the crushing weight of having no hope and no future. The everyday things that folks like us can easily take for granted, those are the things he's actually having to beg for on a regular basis. So it's hard to even begin to fathom A flood of emotions and the thoughts that came rushing into his mind when he hears this. It's Jesus of Nazareth who's passing by. Of all the rich and influential people who had walked this road, and and of all the rulers, of all the leaders, of all the impressive folks who had come and gone, of all the power that had walked through the doors of this city, no name, there is no name on earth who could have been possibly sweeter for this man to hear than Jesus. Clearly, he's heard about the miracles. Clearly, he knows something about Jesus and who he is. And immediately, immediately he knows this is an opportunity that he can't allow. He can't let slip away. He can't let it slide through his fingers. And so he just starts shouting at the top of his lung, desperately hoping to be heard above all of the crowd, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
With all the bustle and everything that's going on around you and everyone that is crowding and, and, the, and, and, the, and the noise, can you hear my voice? Can you hear me, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me? It's a shameless cry. But also notice something crucial here. He calls Jesus, he gives him a title. He calls him the Son of David. And it's his way of bestowing on Jesus a title that stretches far, far beyond just miracle worker. It's a title that stresses, that goes all the way back centuries prior to David in the glory days of Israel. You see, the son of David is the promised descendant, the one who is coming, the offspring of David, who is to sit on God's throne and inherit this kingdom. And this title extends far, far into the future because this reign God promises to establish forever and ever and ever. And so this is no ordinary cry for help. It's based on who Jesus is. And this, this is a cry of faith. This is a cry of faith because he knows standing before him is the living fulfillment of that covenant. Before him is God's chosen heir in the flesh. And now he's tantalizingly close, just a few yards away. He's within earshot. It's enough for this beggar to make a scene. And again, as if to insert a not-so-subtle point, Luke says it's those who have positioned themselves right at the front of the procession. Those who are more interested in being seen with Jesus than in actually being with Jesus. It's those who tell this man to be silent. It's those who tell him, don't you know? Don't you know Jesus is busy with more important things? Don't you know he's talking to more important people? Don't you know you don't factor into his plans? He has places to be. Don't you know your place? Hush! And they presume to speak on Jesus' behalf. They presume to know what Jesus would do. And they rebuke him just as they had rebuked the children that tried to come to Jesus earlier in this chapter. And it's proof that while even though they're the ones who are walking with Jesus in many ways, they're still very distant from him. That kind of harsh response would make a less desperate person calm down. But this wise beggar knew that it was more important to be heard by Jesus than to be admired by others. And so he knows this is no moment to go with the flow, to put it on cruise control. This is no time to slow down. This is no opportunity to slack off. You just don't get these kind of chances. And so who cares? Who cares about looking ridiculous right now when this is your chance to talk to Jesus? John Calvin, in interpreting this scene, this is one of the takeaways that he has from this beggar. But he puts it this way. Perseverance is therefore necessary to overcome every difficulty. And the more numerous the obstacles are which Satan throws in the way, the more powerfully ought we to be excited to earnestness in prayer. 
And so in perseverance, this beggar is excited to earnestness in prayer. And he calls out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And brothers and sisters, that, that's the soundtrack of true faith. We can't always see genuine faith with our eyes, but we certainly can hear it with our ears oftentimes. And this is what it sounds like. This simple sentence is loaded. It is the prayer of faith. It has a specific object, Jesus Christ. It rests in God's covenant promises, Son of David. And it cries out right where we are, just as we are. Have mercy on me. It's a cry of faith. It's a prayer with faith. It's a prayer that's prayed as if it's meant to be heard. And we know the difference that faith makes in praying, don't we? We can tell the difference. It's the difference between prayers that are floated out into a vacuum and prayers that are poured out to a king. That's the difference. Prayer of faith. Prayer of faith has been set ablaze by the promises of Scripture. The prayer of faith concentrates far more on who's being addressed than on who's listening. And the prayer of faith persists because it knows there is no plan B. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the soundtrack of genuine faith. And in our culture of affluence, and in a time that prizes autonomy, it plays downright foreign to our modern sensibilities. And we must be on high alert against that because how easy, how easy, how easy can it be to start to assume that we have a more, much more dignified version of prayer in our day, isn't it? It's easy to begin to assume that. To pray, to pray kinds of prayers that ask for little and expect little. To pray the kind of prayer that packs it in at the first sign of trouble. To be praying in such a way that we're more concerned with saving face rather than seeking God's. But how great is our loss. How great is our loss if we look into the promised land. And then we decide to settle in the desert wasteland of few, safe, and small prayers. Where would Jacob have been if he hadn't wrestled all night? Would David have been able to dance before men? If he had not wept before God. And is not our very own salvation owing to a face down Savior whose sweat was like drops of blood as he prayed? You see, there's only two kinds of people in our world today the kind who feel their own sin and they see the need around them in such a way that they're striving in prayer. And then there's those that are blind. Those are only two options. That's it. Those who are fervently praying and those who are blind. 
So we must ask ourselves and be honest. Do our prayers sound like a people desperate for God to move? Do our prayers sound like a people desperate for God to move? And if not, then why not? Not saying that every prayer, every session has to be this intense Isaiah 6 experience. Sometimes they may be brief, sometimes they may just be to the point, sometimes they may be about mundane things. But the knowledge of God is meant to produce fervency in our souls. It's why some of the most passionate prayers that we're ever going to find in the Bible are prayed by those who are actually in heaven. Ever thought about that? Some of those passionate prayers you're going to find in the Bible are from those who are actually already in heaven. It's amazing to consider. The knowledge of God is produces a fervency in our souls. The greater we know Him, the greater our prayer, the passion in prayer. And deep down, don't we feel... Don't we feel our own longing for that kind of close, face-to-face communion with God? Don't we feel our own need for that? What else in the course of our day can be so important as being heard by God? What greater foothold, security can we have in troubling seas than pleading the promises of this book? This year, may we increasingly be a church who rejects the lie of self-sufficiency and who cries out all the more, aware that our Savior is within earshot. Yes, materially the beggar, materially the beggar was much needier than we are. But we have much to learn from him. We have much to learn from him. And it may mean that we get even weirder in the eyes of the world. But that's worth it. That's actually what the world needs, are some weird praying Christians. And it's worth it because the shameless cry of faith, here's why it's worth it. The shameless cry of faith is always answered by the glorious reply of mercy. The glorious reply of mercy. You want to look at that again in verses 40 to 43. And we start in verse 40. Read verse 40 and 41 again with me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. So far, this whole passage has been in motion. We've been in motion since the beginning of the passage. The language leads us there. And so it's significant when verse 40 opens with the grand procession suddenly grinding to a halt. It's significant. And here's, in this stopping of the procession, here's where another instance, there's, it's over and over again in the Gospels, but here's yet another instance where we see that Jesus just isn't like us. He's just not like us. Rather than continuing on like everyone else had done, or even healing this beggar from a distance, which he absolutely could have done. He could have healed him and kept going and not even slowed down. That would have been enough. That would have been grace. That would have been mercy. But what does he do instead? 
What does he do instead? He stops. He stops and he tells them to bring this man near so he can be heard face to face. It's a stunning scene. God incarnate in the course of the most significant journey in human history with more on his shoulders than anyone could ever imagine stops so that he can spend time listening to the request of this beggar. It must have served as a general rebuke to all those who were caught up in their self-focus. See, even after voluntarily taking on all the same limitations that we deal with, the space and time limitations of our humanity, Jesus took all of those on himself. And yet he still stops. He still lingers. He still listens. Because he's rich in mercy, his ear is always uniquely turned and carefully tuned to the cry of needs. It stops him in his tracks. It's part of who he is. See, Jesus of Nazareth is not like us. His desire to respond is so far beyond our desire to call. If you've been tempted, if you've been praying for a long time, if you've been tempted to give up your prayers, if you're tempted this morning to think that God may somehow be indifferent to where you are, to your roadside, to the needs that you have, or that somehow it just doesn't matter anymore, then I want these two words I want you to leave with these two words. Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. Let that bring fresh comfort and motivation to your soul to be pressing on in prayer. But then notice that after he approaches Jesus, it's Jesus' turn to do the asking. And, and Jesus asks him something that must have seemed glaringly obvious to those around him. It must have seemed obvious. When I was reading this passage, I thought, that's obvious. Why would you ask that? That was my initial thought. He asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the answer is, well, we know the answer. Surely he already knows, right? Surely he's planning to heal this guy. So, so why ask him? Why have this poor man come out and say it? Well, the text doesn't exactly say Why? But we know that Luke includes it to build our own trust in Jesus' character. He includes it because it captures and preserves a picture of the kind of personal care and attention that our need will always draw from Jesus. That's that's why he includes it. It captures and preserves a picture of the kind of personal care, the kind of personal attention that our need draws from our Savior. Jesus does not answer cries from far off. He never has and he never will. You see, in the royal courts, in the royal courts, you can issue a decree. You can handle the needs of your subjects via edict. You can send it out. But the requests of your children, those are meant to be heard. Those are meant to be answered in person, face to face. Those are meant to be listened to. And so this exchange is also for the sake of 
those who were listening in as well. So they too can see and believe in his power to save. They can see his eagerness to hear specific requests. And we too are meant to be drawn in, even as we see this brother brought near. The great physician, listen, he never misses an opportunity. Even as he's sitting by the bedside of one, he's caring for all. So he doesn't ask because he's unaware of the need. He's fully aware of it, and he knows precisely what this man and what we need to hear as well. And so he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And in much the same way, Paul invites us into this same experience when he writes, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. If you want a face for that verse, if you want a picture, a scene of what that verse looks like, then think about this man and Jesus asking him that question. Bring your specific requests. And in the face of our suffering and our pain, of uncertainty and doubt, of loss and grief, of sin and struggles, what a gift. What a gift it is to know that Jesus invites us to come near and to bring specific requests. And with that reassurance, the beggar asks, Lord, Lord, let me recover my sight. And we can't miss who he's talking to here. We can't miss who he's talking to. This that he's speaking with, we've mentioned it, but this is very God of very God. This is the one who had personally crafted the eyes of this man in his mother's womb. He'd already given him sight once. As glorious as God's creation is, it's far surpassed by his redemption. And what this man is about to discover is the way that we experience that glory is through prayer. Look at Jesus' reply in verse 42. Jesus says to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And we notice here that there's a double pronouncement that's being made. The man had asked for sight. That's what he was asking Jesus for, but yet that's not all that Jesus gives. He goes on to say something that's even more astounding. He says, your faith has made you well. Unless we aren't clear on what he means, Luke uses a verb there in the original that can be understood to convey both a temporary, a physical healing, but also a permanent ongoing deliverance, a permanent healing So Jesus is referencing here when he says, your faith has made you well. He's referencing healing in its fullest sense. I remember hearing Aaron's testimony about a trip that he took overseas several years ago to serve a group of local churches. And after one of the services that they had held, a woman came forward. And she had experienced, uh, she was suffering from hearing loss in her ear. She came down to be prayed for. One of the local pastors began to pray for her, and right then and there, she experienced a miraculous healing in that ear. And as we all would be, and and as they were, everyone on the trip was thrilled to see such an immediate and obvious answer to prayer. How could you not get excited if you'd just seen something like that happen? 
But then Aaron detailed an event that happened a few days later as they were sharing the gospel with a local man who did not know Jesus. At the end of that presentation, this man ended up being converted and professing faith in Christ. And this time it was the local pastor's chance to be bouncing off the walls. Because he'd seen physical healings. And as amazing as they were, this is healing in its greatest sense. This is the kind that only God alone can do in a human heart. And so as much joy as there must have been for this man to recover his sight, even that supernatural event, somehow, you can imagine somehow something surpassing recovering your sight, somehow this pronouncement from Jesus had to be even sweeter. Your faith has made you well. And notice again, there's an explicit connection here between faith and mercy. There's an explicit connection here between faith and mercy. It certainly wasn't this man's merits. It wasn't his status that earned him a hearing. No, it was his faith. That was the means that God used, that God intended to use to bring him to Jesus, to connect him to life, to connect him to healing. Because apart from Jesus, there is no healing. So it is with us today. All of the Christian life, all of it, all of the Christian progress that we make, it all rests on the means of faith. Indeed, without faith, it is no matter how hard we work or no matter what position we hold, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the means of our salvation. We are saved through faith. And prayer is the ultimate tangible expression that we actually believe. Prayer is the ultimate tangible expression that we actually believe. It is faith in motion, in action. And since that's the case, then the reverse must also be equally true. The greatest expression of unbelief there is, is prayerlessness. Listen to a biography of Ulysses S. Grant the other day. I remember hearing a quote from one of his sons. He's talking about his father's final days as he battled the late stages of cancer. And I think his son meant it to be a positive quote on the state of Grant's soul, but I remember being struck by how damning a quote it actually was. This is what he said about his dad He said, My father is a good Christian. But he's not really a a, a praying man. And I had to stop and pray myself. Lord, may my children never be able to say that about me. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is the antithesis of true faith. And in the ultimate evaluation of our spiritual condition, it is one of the most telling and accurate pointers of where our hope truly lies. Because prayer is the very means of connecting us with Jesus, who is the source of our everything. And we cannot, we must not ever, ever forget that. It certainly was how this man encountered Jesus. 
Look at this wonderful last verse with me, verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Listen, whiplash. Whiplash doesn't begin to do it justice, does it? From blind to seeing. From sitting to following. From begging to glorifying. And even those who had rebuked this man have to turn around and say, this is God at work. This is God answering prayers. Only God could have done that. And it came as a result of this man's cry of faith. It is a feel-good story in every sense of the word. And yet it's not enough. It is not enough for us to leave this scene only watching this crowd being the ones who give praise to God for his action and his, and his work. It's not enough for us to leave this scene watching others give praise to God. We too must be joining in this chorus. Because you see, when Jesus asked this poor man, what do you want me to do for you? He was the only one there who truly understood, who truly grasped the price of asking such a question. It may not seem like such a big deal at first, but if we stop to consider why in the world, why in the world should we expect anything from the hand of a holy God except His just wrath? He doesn't need to ask us he knows what we deserve. I don't care how needy we are. Can any, of us, can any of us imagine the audacity of a treasonous rebel going to the king that he's just betrayed and saying, I'm going to need you to answer my requests? It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. How could you do that? Even if you're in need, you're that right... That right was altogether forfeited when you chose the losing side. And yet, how is it? How is it that we can so quickly and so easily take for granted the blood-bought privilege of coming to our Father in prayer? Listen, prayer is the last thing that we can assume. It's, ba it's basic, but it's the last thing that we can assume. It is nothing less than God's glorious response of mercy towards us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Why is it that sinful people like you and me can be heard in our most desperate moments? Is it not because Jesus' desperate pleas from the cross weren't answered? Why is it that we are welcomed into God's presence as His children, as His sons and daughters? Is it not because the true Son of David was shut out in utter darkness? Why do we have any hope? Why do we have a future? Why do we pray for healing and restoration? Is it not because there was a suffering servant who took our stripes and bore our griefs? How foolish it is to realize the riches of our costly, costly access to God. And then to voluntarily cut ourselves off or limit ourselves from its bounty. 
Why should we be content to keep on sitting on the roadsides of this world begging when Jesus is passing by? Is he not worthy of leaning on every step of this journey? And standing on this side of the cross, we have all the more reason. We have all the more reason to cry out alongside this man. And we have all the more confidence, knowing with certainty that we will be heard. And so as we face another year of insecurity, because 2021 is going to be that, as we walk through the trials and sorrows of this life, as we see the depths of our own depravity and the beauty of what Christ has done, then let us, by faith, be daily bringing our specific needs and requests to Him too. Let's take our cue from this beggar and be calling on the name of Jesus and let our community groups and our Sunday gatherings and our homes and our workplaces and our classrooms be temples, be places of fervent, fervent prayer. Brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, the curtain, the curtain that kept us at a distance has been torn. So let us be praying as people, like those who have been brought near, because we truly have been in Jesus Christ. Young people, there are so many distractions in your world today. They're, they're, they're just trying to blind you. Do not let them keep you from praying. Do not let them, do not let this phone right here, this phone, do not let it keep you from praying, young people. Couples, couples, we are walking through minefields. We cannot assume anything. We are called to be living out the gospel and representing that to each other. That's our calling in Christ Jesus as married husbands and wives. How are we supposed to be doing that? Should we not be on our knees together pleading for the grace to walk this journey, to give glory to God in the marriages and the places that we've been called to? Parents, Yes, our kids need a roof over their heads. Yes, they need food. Yes, they need an education. But don't our kids need our prayer above everything else, above all worldly goods and comforts and goals? Do they not need our prayers? And to all of us who are now one year closer to eternity, because we are, shouldn't our prayers be all the more urgent now that we can start to see that horizon on the shore. So church, let us pray. Let us pray. Let us pray over big things and small things. Let us pray for long stretches and let us pray as we go on the way. Let us pray when everything seems to be going well and let us pray through our tears. Let us pray when we feel like it, and let us pray when there's obstacles in the way. Let us pray alone, and let us pray together. Let us pray for our joy, and let us pray for our mission. We must be praying. Above all, church, let us pray. Why should the, broom, the, 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 bride, why should the bride not know her groom? And will our Savior not hear? And answer our prayers. This passage shows us he is ready to listen. He's ready to listen to every single one of us right where we are. Right where you are this morning. He's not far off. He's passing by. Do not let this opportunity go. Let us pray. 
And one day soon, we too will be standing on the shores of glory. And our testimony is going to rise up alongside the psalmist who wrote this. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him. Emphasis on heard. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. That's going to be our testimony in the end, church. Let us be praying towards that day. And let's pray together now as we close. Father, we want to begin this year Lord, asking for your grace and asking for your mercy. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you are a merciful and kind God who is rich in mercy, who welcomes us in, in our sin, in our mess, even in our doubts, in our unbelief, in our busyness. Lord, you welcome us. You invite us to come and to bring our requests to you. And Lord, even as John prayed in the pastoral prayer, I pray that this year, I pray that this year would be a year of growth in our church in this area. Everyone here, or for everyone who's listening in and watching on the live stream or present here, I pray you would cause them to hit their knees in 2021. Help us as we gather in community, as we come to encounter you on Sunday by Sunday, as we face the needs and the trials of our day and our weeks. Lord, let us not do so on our own, in our own strength, self-sufficient. Lord, let us, help us, we pray, to be a praying people. And Lord, we anticipate all the ways, all the testimonies that we're going to have of how you move. Lord, that's what we need, you to move. We give you all the praise and we give you all the glory in advance. We say thank you in advance that you are going to answer prayer this year in our church, in our midst. And you're going to do the things that only we could dream of. May you receive and hear. Lord, we know that the prayers of the saints are the incense rise like incense to the heavens. Lord, may we be pleasing to you in this regard that our church prays for the glory of King Jesus and for his return, we pray. 